Hello and welcome to episode 56 of the MDDDS podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kyle Fagala, and tonight Dr. David Flatt will be leading us in a lesson on the book of Acts. This will be our second week in a four-week series on the New Testament. If you've been following along, we did the entire Old Testament in something like nine or ten weeks. We're going to do the whole New Testament in four weeks, which is kind of crazy. But the way that we've done this is we did one week on the life of Christ. We're going to do a week now on the church, Acts. Then we're going to do a week on all the books from Romans to Jude. And then we'll do a week on Revelation. And that will wrap up this year of MDDDS. It's been a real pleasure. We've had a really great group and a lot of lessons that uh, we're really proud of. And we uh, encourage you to go back and listen to if you haven't already. Tonight, though, we'll be looking at another book by Luke. So we did the Gospel of Luke. This week, we're going to do the book of Acts, which was written by Luke. And uh, this is a really exceptional book. We're going to look at the life of Peter, the young church, and also then Saul, who changes his name to Paul and all the missionary journeys included. So it's a lot to get through, uh, but a really exceptional book and one that I'm excited to learn more about. So without further ado, let's go to Dr. David Flatt with a lesson on the book of Acts. All right, so um, welcome to Bible study tonight. Glad to hear about um, kind of how everybody's doing. Glad everybody had a good week. <clears throat> we have gone through the whole Old Testament, so I think most of you guys have been here for most of it. So we started in Genesis, worked all the way to the end of the Old Testament. Now we're going to do the New Testament, which a number of words is, is much, much shorter. So we're going to do all the New Testament in four weeks, which is still pretty quick. So uh, Kyle did all of Luke, so that's going to count as our, this is the story of Jesus. That was last week. Um, and tonight we'll do Acts. Next week, Kyle's going to teach all of the letters <laughs> in one in one lesson. So if you if if you don't know about the Bible, come next week because we're going to do all of it in forty minutes, all of the, the Christian theology, and then we'll finish up with Revelation one week on Revelation. As you think about um, kind of the New Testament, there's several different kind of paradigms you could use to think about it. One paradigm is is a, a, a political paradigm, and I don't mean in the sense of like Republican versus Democrat politics, but I mean in the sense of where is the seat of ultimate authority. And so what the New Testament is basically saying is telling a story of the ultimate authority is not with the emperor. It's not with who happens to be Caesar. It's not with the, even the Pharisees or the Sanhedrin. The new ultimate authority is the new king, King Jesus. And so you can tell the story of the New Testament. I think it's in a lot of ways it's how the authors envisioned what they were doing. As they were saying, there's a new kingdom and Jesus is the king. And so last week's lesson, we talked about the king and his kingdom. That's the book of Luke. And tonight will be the people of the kingdom. So this is a story of Acts. Next week will be the letters of the kingdom. And then we'll finally finish up with the return of the king. Revelation is coming back. It's also a great other fictional book called Return of the King. You should read it too um, <clears throat> after you read the Bible. So uh, tonight is the people of the kingdom, the book of Acts. I want to briefly say this. I was going to spend a little more time on it, but it's on your notes. I guess we got to fill in the blanks. So we'll do this quick. The point is, um, I think there's a really cool thing about art and beauty and how it relates to the Christian life. And being kind of a modern, scientific, kind of logically thinking person, I think we kind of miss this sometimes. And I think God communicates through beauty. So one of the things we're trying to do in this series is the slideshows have all these beautiful paintings of Renaissance Christian art. And the idea there, I hope we get a, a, a couple ideas, but the first is that, that art connects us to beauty, connects us to beauty, and beauty is one of the languages of God. So your blank there is beauty. 
Great art shows us how people have been inspired by God's story to create beauty in the world. Great art also inspires us to be creators within our own sphere of the kingdom. I think a good paradigm for how you think about your life is are you a consumer or are you a creator? And there's a lot of pressures on us to be consumers in our world, whether it be on our phones or watching Netflix or um, how we engage with music and art. We're we're all consuming. Uh, The truth is, though, that our God, who we're made in the image of, He's a creator. So I think an interesting question for living a beautiful life is to think of what are the areas in my world that I can be a creator? What are the stories that I can write? What are the ways in, in my place of business or in my job that I can create beauty? Um, and I think as we do that, we, we're kind of living into our image as opposed to passively consuming, which I, I think all the pressure in a capitalist, materialistic, economically successful society is to consume because we don't really have to create anymore. So um, <clears throat> I think a healthy Christian life involves creation. So um, healthy thing to think about in our jobs, how to do that. Okay. Acts was written by Luke. He's a physician and companion of Paul. It's addressed to this guy named Theophilus. A really interesting discussion about who Theophilus may or may not have been, but we'll punt that to a, another conversation. Okay, key verses in Acts. I think these are two kind of big-time key verses. Both happen right at the beginning. If you kind of get these, I think you kind of get um, a lot of the story and and what Luke's trying to do in Acts. So the first one is the first verse. Uh, Acts chapter 1, verse 1. It talks about how this book is all... He said, In my my former work, most excellent Theophilus, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach. So that's the introduction. That's the first verse in Acts 1. So I I think what that leaves us with, obviously, is... Well, what is this book about? And so this book is about what Jesus continued to do and teach and through the power of the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is a big theme in the book of Acts. And so I think right from the beginning, Paul's making the point of Luke was about what Jesus began to do and teach. This book is about what Jesus continued to do and teach. And then the next verse to talk about is Acts verse 1-8. So I'm just going to read this verse. But you will receive power when you... When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So this is the theme verse of Acts and really lays out the outline of the rest of the book. So there's four kind of grand movements in Acts. The first is uh, chapters 1 through 7, and this is what the Holy Spirit does in Jerusalem. The next movement is uh, chapters 8 through 12, and that's what the Holy Spirit does as the Christian gospel spreads to Judea and Samaria, which is kind of the surrounding area around Jerusalem. And then is the the third movement, which we'll divide into, into two movements, but this is when the Holy Spirit takes the gospel to the ends of the earth. So initially, kind of the first part of the third of the third movement is Paul's missionary journeys. And the second part of the third movement is literally to the ends of the earth, all the way to Rome, you know, the capital, the the, the apex of uh, Western and world culture at the time is where the uh, book of Acts ends. So that's what's that's kind of what Paul lays out, and I think we'll just kind of walk piece by piece uh, through the book. But if you keep that outline in your mind, I think it's easy to kind of understand uh, what what Luke's doing as we go. So this is the um, <coughs> Bible Projects poster. So you kind of see they laid it out pretty similarly. So they got one through seven over here on the left. 
that's in Jerusalem. Then they got 8 through 12, that's Judea. And then 13 through 28 is to the ends of the earth. First is the missionary journeys. And then over here, uh, Paul on the way to Rome. So that's how the book lays out. Okay, so let's talk about 1 through 7 first. So this is, um, this is the Holy Spirit doing works in Jerusalem, then in Judea and Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. Okay, this is a painting by Raphael called The Healing of the Lame Man. So that's from Acts 3. You guys uh, may remember that story. Really cool picture. So let's watch a video on 1 through 7 and then we'll talk about it. One of the earliest accounts about... <laughs> okay, so Acts 1 through 7. Let's talk about it real quick. So key themes in the first movement. The first is the risen King Jesus promises the Spirit. So Jesus promises, I'm going to give you my Spirit. And then I think it, it, just a, one of the real sub-themes of the whole Bible is the fulfillment of God's promises. God keeps His promises. Jesus promises the Spirit. Spirit comes. The Holy Spirit comes in power at Pentecost. And the next theme, I think through 1 through 7, is like we talked about in the Bible Project video, is the conflict between the temples culminates in the death of Stephen. So this is this conflict between the Jewish temple, the Jewish leaders and authorities, and then the, the new temple, uh, which is Christians. It's the spirit-indwelled followers of Jesus. And so there's this like, beautiful idea of like fire is a symbol of the presence of God. And so fire is on the holy mountain. Fire is in the burning bush with Moses. Now the tongues of fire rest on uh, the Christians. And so it, it's, it's a, a diverse and spread out Holy Spirit power that, that um, is filling the early Christians. And this conflict between the religious leaders and the, and the Christian movement, which is preaching against the practices of the Pharisees and the rejection the Pharisees had of Jesus, that ends in the death of one of the great early Christian leaders, which is Stephen. In Acts 7, he gives this awesome speech. We could have just read that speech instead of doing like 10 weeks on the Old Testament because he, like, he walks through the whole, the whole deal. And uh, it's one of the reasons why understanding the whole Bible is helpful when you talk about these stories. So the book of Acts is a very Jewish document. I mean, it's reflecting on uh, the story of the Israelites. And Stephen is definitely connecting. Jesus is the fulfillment of the promises in the Old Testament. So, Stephen dies, and you think this is a disaster, right? So you've got this early movement. They have just a few charismatic leaders. Maybe the most charismatic is Stephen. He's given this great speech, and he's stoned, and you're like, this is, it's over. Everyone's scared. In fact, at the end of um, either chapter, I think chapter 8, the end of chapter 8, maybe it's the end of chapter 7, there's this phrase like, you know, every, all the Christians are scared, and so they flee Jerusalem. You're like, well... That was a good try. You know, we had this prophet. He died. He rose from the dead. We tried to start this religion, but I guess it's over now. What ends up happening, though, is all these new Christians who are converted at Pentecost, right? So there's like, there's like 20 Christians, right? They live up in the, in the upper room. Then they have Pentecost. They convert like 5,000 people in Pentecost. It's like you know, this awesome like gospel big tent revival. Everybody's getting baptized. Then they kind of got like this kind of large church right there in Jerusalem meeting in the temple and then everybody scatters because they're, they're fear of persecution. So what happens? Well, they go and plant churches all across the region, right? And so that's going to lead us into the next part of Judea and Samaria because all these churches have been spread. And so God used the evil intended by the persecutors to expand the kingdom, spread the gospel, and accomplish His divine purposes. 
So another great theme uh, in the Bible is this idea of providence. So you remember we talked about the story of Joseph at the end of Genesis. The last verse in Genesis is chapter 50, verse 20. Joseph says to his brothers, As for you, you meant evil against me. Remember his brothers sold him into slavery, trying to be evil to him. But God meant it for good, to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So we often look in the world and we think, man, it really feels like evil's winning right here. I'm, I'm sure the day Stephen was stoned, that didn't feel like a day of victory for the church. It ended up being one of the most important victorious days in church history because that's how the church catapulted out of Jerusalem and ended up reaching the ends of the earth. I mean, that's why, that's why we're here tonight. Um, and so I think it's helpful, both thinking about the story of Joseph and the story about Stephen, is that we don't see the whole picture. And so our calling is to be faithful in the moment God's put us in and to not get not get too discouraged when it, it feels like disasters upon us. Okay, so let's move on to chapter 8. So remember uh, verse 1-8, this is kind of our outline. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, we just finished that, and in all Judea and Samaria, that's what we're fixing to do, and to the ends of the earth. So all Judea and Samaria, this is 8-12. through 12. This is the liberation of St. Peter, painted by a famous Italian painter. <laughs> yeah, give it a try. Uh, no, I'm not. Ricci. Okay, Ricci, right here. Right? Yeah. Um, Sorry. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Take those out the next time. Like, yeah, that was a bad decision. All right. So, eight through twelve shows how a messianic Jewish sect. So I think, I mean, this is a small group of people up in the upper room in fear right after Jesus goes up. I mean, small group of people, small Jewish messianic sect became a multicultural, multi-ethnic, international movement. So this may not be something that's in your conscience when you think about... Um, Christianity, but the truth is that Christianity is the most ethnically, racially, um, economically, and geographically diverse religion that the world has ever seen, and it's it's really not even close. So you think about other major world religions today, or certainly uh, major religions in the past, all of them have deep ties to ethnicity and geography and, um, and, and tribal structure and function. Uh, Christianity really stands kind of isolated. It's this idea that you woke up this morning in a world where there's people speaking every major language in the world, on every continent in the world, in almost every country in the world, worshiping this Jewish itinerant desert wandering preacher that that was crucified in 30 AD. How did that happen? And so really that's what that's what the book of Acts is about. How this happened that now over a third of the world is worshiping this guy and it's not a third of the world that's all the same. So I think we have a tendency for a lot of reasons, some reasonable, some are, are really not good reasons, to think that Christianity is a religion of white, middle-class suburbanites in the Bible Belt, right? And something like the opposite is true, uh, especially when you think about where Christianity is growing right now. It's like in the opposite places of that. It's not in like the upper-class um, areas of Western civilization. It's, it's south and it's east. That's where Christianity is exploding and growing. And I think that's great that that's what's happening right now because the truth is that's how it has been intended to happen from the beginning. 
And uh, that's really what the story of chapters 8 through 12 is about. A lot of times in Scripture we've talked about this. Of course, uh, teachings in Scripture come with like direct commandments or direct lessons. But sometimes the authors of Scripture and the Holy Spirit let the narrative do the teaching. So in 8 through 12, that's kind of what's happening to make this point. So let me just point out here, but there's the stories of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. Those are two very different people. Philip is this like Jewish, uh, you know, Christian uh, kind of religious person. Ethiopian eunuch is a is a obviously an Ethiopian official with a lot of political power. They have this encounter where the Ethiopian eunuch is converted. Saul is converted. So you've got the Ethiopian eunuch who's an Ethiopian political official. You have Saul who's like this academic Jewish leader, studied under Gamaliel. He kind of went to the Harvard of Jewish thought. Um, and so you have Paul's converted. Then you have Peter's vision. So Peter has this vision. Um, I guess I don't have time to go into all the details, but the vision ends in um, the Holy Spirit revealing to Peter that all food is can be eaten now. It's not you. We don't just eat clean food. And the message there would have been doesn't really strike us as odd, but would have been radical to Peter. So you're saying that we can eat all, everything. That that means all these people who eat differently than us that you're accepting them now, and that that's really the point of the story is that yes, or I'm accepting everybody from all these nations who eat in all these different ways because the kingdom of God is for everyone. Then after Peter has that vision, it leads him to two kind of radical and unexpected conversion experiences. The first is with Cornelius. So you've got this um, Roman official that he has a vision that Peter's going to come to his house. And so then Peter fulfills that vision, uh, led by the Holy Spirit, goes to Cornelius' house, preaches the gospel to Cornelius. Cornelius is baptized. And then you've got this other, uh, and his family, you've got this other situation with a Roman official. Remember, they're in, they're in jail and um, they could have escaped, but they don't. Roman official is kind of touched. He hears uh, the preaching of, of um, Peter and the early Christians, and he becomes converted, and his whole family. So you've got a Roman official, you've got Cornelius, who's a um, culturally Greek, uh, or a culturally Greek Roman. You've got Philip, who is an Ethiopian. You have Saul, who's uh, a strict Jew, and you have Peter, who's a Jewish Christian who has his idea of, of ethnicity and who's involved in the kingdom of God all radically cha- changed. And it's not a coincidence that all those stories are kind of sit here in the central part of Acts because this is really the hinge point. Initially, the people of God find a new way of being the people of God by following Jesus. Now that they're following King Jesus, they're recognizing that this opens up the people of God to a much larger group, not just in Jerusalem, but in Judea and Samaria. And so the response to that is, okay, well, we got to go tell everybody then. (laughs) So now that it's open to everybody, now the story is, okay, well, we take this to the ends of the earth. I think it's reasonable to pause and say, what is our reaction to that that message? And I think far too often we're content to to tell the story to each other, including me. And I'm not saying it's you know I've told the story before about like when we were in New Orleans and there was this like guy sit literally standing on a soapbox preaching in the middle of Bourbon Street. That guy's probably not being effective. But I wonder if his heart is in a little bit better place than my heart can be. In that at least he's trying. You know, I'm content to be comfortable and only talk about my faith with people who make me comfortable when I talk about it. And so I think we ought to be thinking about strategic ways to share the gospel with people who um, can be touched and benefit from that message, whether that be um, where we work or in our city or or to the nations. Okay, so that leads to the third part in Acts. So this is uh, to the ends of the earth. This is the missionary journeys of Paul.
What time is it? I'll tell you, I'll just press on. We've already watched the video, and so. During the first century, most we can just press on here. Okay, so uh, let's look at this map. So if you went uh, to a Christian school, except Lipscomb, they probably didn't make y'all learn this. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so you, this map like kind of like gives you like nightmares, right? Because you had to like memorize and like draw all these paths and memorize all these like weird sounding cities and names. And, uh, but uh, it is relevant for this part of the story of Acts because this is when uh, this happened. So this is Acts 13 through 20. So Paul makes three journeys from Antioch. So he, Antioch becomes kind of the, um, the I don't know, the, the founder. Yeah, the, it's like the home church of Paul. It's his sending church. So he leaves Antioch to go on these three journeys, ends up back in Antioch. And so he goes from Antioch in the first journey. He goes into Asia, well this doesn't work, but in Antioch, he goes from Antioch into Asia Minor, and then on the second one he goes up north into Greece, and then on the third missionary journey, almost kind of like Jesus, he ends his, his final journey heading back towards Jerusalem. So you can see this blue arrow here ending up in Jerusalem, that's where he goes on the third missionary journey. So I wish we had time to like kind of dive into each of these three journeys because it's really awesome. There's really cool store, stories here. I mean, it's almost like Lord of the Rings type stuff. Like he gets in a shipwreck, there's by a fire, he's bit by a snake. I mean, it's like the kind of stories like a 12-year-old boy would be like so excited to hear about. Um, but we don't have time for that. So you should just go read them. They're really good stories. Um, but in each of these journeys, Paul establishes Jesus communities called churches. So he plants churches in all these cities. And this is really the start of uh, the global church as we understand it today. So in these churches, these are places where people proclaim and live out the way of Jesus. One reason I think it's neat to reflect on this is there's so much that like comes with the term church now, all this baggage. Like you may think of a church as like a building and a structure. And I think like at our church, I think this is great. But we have like all these names for different like areas of the church. Have you thought about this? And like, it, w- it makes no sense if you like, you've never come to church before, but it's like, this is the commons and this is the, um, the crossing. Like, what are you talking about? And it's all, it's all cool if you're like in the middle of that culture, but it's, it's almost kind of hard to understand from the outside. And so one reason I think it's neat to reflect on this, is you think how simple this was. What a church was, is just a community of people who were committed to proclaiming and living out the way of Jesus. And so I, I think we should continue to have buildings for kind of strategic reasons and all that. I'm not, um, you know, there is a certain kind of radical Christian that's like against buildings. That's not, that's not who I am. But I do think it's a relevant critique to think, what's the purpose of this in the first place? And really what we're trying to do is the same thing we're trying to do tonight. We're trying to build communities where we encourage each other to tell and live out the way of Jesus. And so that's what Paul was trying to do when he planted these churches. The Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, this is a really important moment in expanding the ethnic identity of the church. Um, <clears throat> this is, there's this huge tension in the New Testament. You really can't understand the letters of the rest of the New Testament if you don't think about this concept. But there's the idea of the, there were this group of early Christians called Judaizers. And their view was that to become a Christian, you had to become Jewish. So if you weren't ethnically Jewish, you need to convert to Judaism, and then you could become a Christian. So if you were a male and you weren't circumcised, you need to be circumcised. If you weren't following the holy days, you need to follow the holy days. You need to dress Jewish. You need to become Jewish before you could become a Christian.
Christian. And so, of, of course, I think being Jewish, the Jewish foundations of Christianity are incredibly important. The times of like anti-Jewish and anti-Semitism strains in the history of Christianity, which are present, are really despicable and are, are kind of ignorant. I almost feel like you guys didn't read any of the story. <laughs> like this whole story is like celebrating Jewish identity. However, I think it is important to know that an important conclusion in Acts 15 is that you don't have to become Jewish to become a Christian. And so to, to us, we kind of think like, what? Well, of course you don't. But that was a big moment, right? Because to them, to be part of the people of God meant that you were Jewish. But now to be part of the people of God means you're a follower of Jesus. And so they decided in Acts, in Acts 15 at the Jerusalem Council, thankfully for, I guess, a, a lot of Gentile Christians were excited about this, but you don't have to be circumcised, right? You, you can be a Christian without having to go be circumcised. And the only kind of new criteria they had for these converts from paganism into Christianity was, number one, you had to um, um, forego sexual infidelity. So no more, you know, worshiping idols with sexual practices. You had to quit all that. And then you, then no more worshiping of idols. You couldn't sacrifice meat to idols in this like sacrificial worship. So those are the two things. We're only worshiping one God. If you're a Christian, we're going to be a one God, one God Christians. And then we're not going to engage in sexual immorality. And I think it also speaks to now why sexual morality is so important to Christianity. Well, from the beginning, it's been part of our core identity. There's something special and sacred about sexual behavior. And we glorify God and how we do and don't do that. So that's not some new add-on that fundamentalists in the 1980s came up with. That's part of what it has always meant to be a Christian. So there's a dramatic clash of cultures between Christians and the Greco-Roman world. So there's this tension building that really ends in, in this last section. But you can first there's this clash of cultures between um, Christians and the Jewish authorities. Now there's this clash of cultures between the Greco-Roman authorities and the church. And we can kind of just move on to the next section. I'll, I'll flesh this out a little bit more. So this is part four to the ends of the earth, part two, on to Rome. So on to Rome. This is the trial of the Apostle Paul. An Italian man also painted this one. <laughs> so Paul's teaching continued to frustrate the authorities. He's arrested in Jerusalem. So Paul's message is, is really radical, but it's also confusing. So um, the Roman Empire is a fascinating thing to study. Totally dominated Western culture for like over a thousand years. In some ways, it's almost weird that the Roman Empire fell, like that we're not all Romans now. Interesting kind of accidents of history. But um, at, at this moment, you know, the Romans knew how to deal with like political upstarts, right? So somebody starts saying, I got a new kingdom, I'm a new king, I'm the new leader, I'm the new authority. Like, come, They usually had a sword in their hand when they said it. The Romans knew what to do with that, right? They cut their heads off, they crucified them, and they stamped that stuff out really well for a really long time. That's how they came to dominate the West. But with like Paul's message and other Christians, they didn't really know how to respond to this because this is a group of people that were saying, our, ultimately, our ultimate authority is not in Rome. But they were like caring for the sick, they're like loving their neighbor. They were saying in their churches, they were telling each other to pay their taxes. That was like a, a big theme of like early Christianity. Like Jesus said, pay our taxes. We're going to pay our taxes. We are going um, to, to submit to the earthly powers, but they are not our ultimate authority. So that what they were preaching was subversive and kind of felt uncomfortable, create a cultural clash. But do you throw someone in jail who's like not... I mean, I do anything, right? So that's why Paul ends up in all these weird trials. So, in fact, Paul goes on trial like four times. He goes on trial. It's like such and such judge, and they're like, 
uh, I'm not really sure what to do with this. Like, I can't just like let you go, but I mean, I'm not gonna like have you beheaded. So, so, so the Sanhedrin's like, we'll send him to Governor Felix. And so then he goes and Felix sees Paul, and he's like, I don't know what to do. So he sends him from Governor Felix to Festus, and then he goes to Festus, and at Festus, Festus doesn't know what to do either. Kind of a similar conversation, and he goes to King Agrippa. Each time, Paul gives his like awesome sermons, so they're worth like listening to because they're like, why are you on trial? And Paul gives us like. I mean, like, awesome, epic sermon, and then they're like, "Well, I'm not sure." And so they send him to the next, the next, uh, next authority. So he ends up in Rome to Caesar. So he after he talks to Agrippa, so Agrippa's not sure what to do. Paul's a Roman citizen, so he appeals to Caesar, so that he gets sent all the way to Rome, and he appears to Rome, and he's shipwrecked along the way. He eventually gets placed under house arrest. So that's kind of you can kind of see the tension here, like. Even in today's culture, we put someone under house arrest. It's kind of like we're not sure what to do with you, right? We like we can't. You wouldn't really feel safe just like saying you're a free citizen. Like you don't really need to be in jail. So why don't you just like be in jail in your house? And so that's what happens to Paul. He's under house arrest at the end of the story. So again, I want to come back to this idea of providence. God's providence works powerfully, even through the great missionary's house arrest. So I want to think about this for a second. This also seemed like a disaster, right? Because you have this. This great missionary who's kind of come out of the Christian movement has spent the last 30 or 40 years. First, he's converted. I mean, we know the, the whole story. But he goes on these three great missionary journeys that most of the churches that exist have been planted by this guy. I mean, he's like the guy that's that's leading and being kind of the great Christian leader. And now he's in jail. Like, he has to stay in this house. He can't go anywhere and plant any churches. He has to stay in this house. So what happens? See. Right. He starts writing letters, which is like why we're here tonight, right? Like we wouldn't be here if this didn't happen. So he is like, am I getting goosebumps like thinking about it? Like you would think like our great missionary, our great church planner is trapped in a house. But God uses that providentially to create not just like a church in the Middle Eastern world, but now an international church. Because now people read the book of Romans in China and in Hong Kong and in Memphis, Tennessee and in California and in Russia and in South Africa. He writes these letters that are literally read on every continent across the world. And so again, what we think is this like disaster is this epic providential move to send Paul to the capital of the world where he can write these letters and then they're distributed across Roman roads so they can't burn the letters because they're all over the world, right? Or they're all over the known world and then they're copied and copied and copied into the most copied book in history the world and everybody knows the story and the theology of the early Christian church because Paul wrote them. So think about this last verse. This is Acts 28, not, not Acts 8. Acts 28 verse 31. This is how the book of Acts ends. In some ways I think echoes the way that Genesis ends. So Genesis ends like you, you meant it for evil, God meant it for good. Here's the way Acts, 20, Acts, Acts ends uh, verse 28, 31. Paul was proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. So Think about it, without hindrance, so he's like under house arrest, mm-hmm. but, but it's without hindrance because the Holy Spirit's in his pen. So what are the main ideas in Luke-Acts? So I think it, <clears throat> this is kind of a, a, a moment to pause and think about Luke-Acts as one work. So Luke wrote the whole thing, so what are kind of, what's he trying to get across? You could say a lot of things. I left out some things here you could say. Probably I should have included the role of women. I think that's an important thing to Luke, speaking into a very patriarchal society. More than any other New Testament writer, he's including women in prominent roles and showing how they're important in the life of the church. You could, you should probably add that there. Next time I teach that, I'll add that. But that's a big theme in Luke-Acts, is that women are important in the people of God and in the movement of God. So God's kingdom came on earth as in heaven 
through Jesus. That's the book. That's what Luke's about. How how King Jesus brings this new kingdom to earth through His Spirit. That's what early Acts is about. How the Holy Spirit is empowering this cowardly group of um, Messianic Jewish sect followers to literally change the world, and then His kingdom comes on earth through the church. That's the, your blanks are through Jesus, His Spirit, and His church. Three levels of how the kingdom comes to earth. And of course, this third level is we're a part of today. We're still trying to be Jesus' church that brings His kingdom to earth through the power of the Spirit. Then faithfulness is shown to King Jesus by... So here's three things I think we do by um, being faithful members of this new kingdom. We share the good news in word and action. So there's this kind of tension when you start talking to people about churches. Are you a... A gospel-centered church? Or are you a social justice-centered church? Like there's this tension between word and action. So are you a church that does or a church that teaches? And of course the answer is that is a silly false false paradigm. Right? There's a false choice, false dichotomy. Um, you don't have to choose between those two things. And the early church would, would have spent zero time considering which one are we going to do. We do both. So a church that only does social justice and doesn't preach the gospel is not a church. It's, it's some kind of charity or social justice organization that may be doing good work, but it's not a church. Then a church that is only cares about the people within its walls and is just telling a story over and over without changing the way people live, that is also not a church. That's some kind of academic club, right? So we, want, we don't want to be either one of those. We want to live out the way the church did in Acts. We want to share the good news in word and action. Then we want to form diverse communities of kingdom living. So sometimes this is harder than it would first appear. So it, I think it's real easy to be a you know 22-year-old grad student and say we need to you know we need to bring more diversity. And the truth is that's um, a, a helpful critique, but it's hard. And so we need to be thinking about strategic ways to expand the kingdom out so that all peoples and all places hear the message of the gospel and are included in the life of the church. And that doesn't mean that every church is going to have the same diversity mix. Some churches are going to be more gifted in this. They're going to be like split between all these different diversities. Some churches are not going to be very diverse. But I think we should always be pursuing how can we become a more diverse place as we're more unified on the gospel truth. And so I think kind of paradoxically, if you look at, uh, at the most diverse churches, they're the churches that are the most unified about what, what the gospel is. So if you're unified on message, if you're unified on doctrine, it really opens you up to be able to be more diverse in terms of, of race and ethnically. Okay, and then finally, we trust the Spirit's power and guidance. So this is a hard one, I think, for American Christians. If you want to say, well, David, how do you want to spread the kingdom to the world? I'm like, well, here's my five-point plan. You know, I'm going to knock it out here. And the truth is, like, my five-point plan would have been really different from the one they used in Acts, right? I would not have said, let's have our best preacher get stoned to death right at the beginning. I would not have said, let's have our best church planner be put under house arrest so he can't like plant any more churches. Like, it seemed like a bad plan. Um, but the Spirit is a lot smarter than me. And I think recognizing that he's the one with the power and I want to follow his guidance, uh, that's really where um, mature Christian living comes from. So that is the book of Acts.